Welcome to Calvary Church Online. Uh, let me thank you for joining us this morning. Like many of you, I've been pulled all over the emotional map this past week. A couple of days ago, you should have received a letter from me, which contains a short Q&A session between Steve Core, one of our elders and me. And we just talked about some of the issues that we're probably thinking about and feeling about, but maybe unable to talk about in different contexts and circumstances. If you haven't read the letter, I encourage you to do that. If you uh, didn't receive it by email, you can go to our website, you can go to our Facebook page, and you can access it. If either, neither of those channels work for you, you can send an email to the church, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. I want to begin this morning by just reading the very opening of the letter to kind of get our attention focused in the right direction as we start. The events of the week began with the senseless and appalling killing of George Floyd, which served to bring up our nation's terrible history of racism and injustice. Peaceful protest in some places degenerated into opportunities for vandalism, lawlessness, and destruction. At times, I find myself fighting a sense of discouragement because the message of the gospel seems to almost be drowned out by the politicized, incendiary, and divisive voices on all sides. As followers of Jesus Christ and members of the Calvary community, we must stand together in living out the great commandment of Jesus, love God and love people. Therefore, racism, injustice, and violence should have no place in our community and certainly no place in our mission. Because of what's going on uh, in our world and in our country, a, a couple of people asked me if we're going to break from our series to address those particular issues. I thought about that. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that our series is the perfect message and contains the perfect themes to address what we see not only today, but will help us address the real problems underneath all the symptoms of our world. We're in a series that we're calling Be the Countercultural Church. And just to kind of remind you of that countercultural message, Paul talks about the wisdom of culture and how the countercultural wisdom of the gospel is radically different. Paul talks about the cultural power and the radically different countercultural power of the gospel. And so, as we think about power and wisdom, it's the gospel that calls us to something different. And what Paul's doing in these two letters to the Corinthians is he's unpacking that wisdom and that power that will actually transform us and help us be part of transforming the world. Well, we are going to address the issue of countercultural power today. That's the section that Paul picks up in chapter two. But I do want to remind you that we're still in that little bit of a rabbit trail. Paul shifts gears in verse 17 of chapter one uh, from talking about the vision in the body. The cross pops up in his mind, and then he goes on this excursus through the rest of one and all of two before he comes back to the topic in chapter three. So we're still in that little bit of a rabbit trail where the wisdom of the cross and the power of the gospel are being explained in chapter two. Well, let's first of all talk about cultural power. So before we talk about countercultural power, let's tease out some of what cultural power is all about. The first thing I want to say is that power privileges. Everybody knows that. Power brings certain privileges. I read a whole bunch of uh, studies on power this week, and so I'm going to mention a few of these studies to you under this cultural power idea. There have been studies that, uh, that are repeated 
based on the kinds of cars people drive and whether they are generous and gracious or whether they're kind of selfish and, you know, just running roughshod over other people. So here are the studies. How do people who drive and own very expensive cars drive? Well, if you think about it, they would probably be, in our minds, the most grateful, the most gracious kind of people. Because, let's make a couple of assumptions. If somebody has a really powerful, expensive car, that means that person probably has a pretty good education. That means that person probably has a fair bit of money so they can drop a boatload of it on a car. It probably means that person is a pretty good education. It probably means that that person owns a pretty nice house and has lots of um, you know, creature comforts in his or her existence. So you would think that somebody with a powerful, expensive car would be living a grateful life with lots of gratitude and graciousness and generosity. So they would be very um, open to giving other people, particularly pedestrians, the right of way. Uh, not so. In fact, study after study has shown that it's actually people who own and drive the least expensive cars that are the most gracious to pedestrians. And as long as, long as we're talking about pedestrians having the right of way, whoever came up with this rule, rule like down the, sh down the shore that pedestrians have the right of way, that makes no, well, anyway, back to our topic. People with inexpensive cars actually are more gracious and more giving to pedestrians than people with expensive cars, even though you would think that those who have all of these benefits would live with more gratitude. Actually, uh, most of the studies come up with the same results. I'll tease them out for you, for some of you. The most privileged people as they drive seem to be BMW drivers. They uh, kind of flaunt the rules. They don't give the right away to pedestrians too often. They're too busy about their business, exercising the power that's under the hood of their BMW. Oh, second, we the discourteous drivers would be Mercedes drivers. Maybe they're busy getting to an appointment, doing their thing, but they're not very uh, gracious to pedestrians either. Here's an interesting twist. The third least gracious group to drivers, Prius drivers. Maybe they feel so good about themselves and how they're saving the environment that they can't pat themselves on the back and drive well at the same time. Power brings privileges. And isn't a lot of what we see in our homes a lot of what we see on the news these days, a lot of what we're experiencing in our country and around the world, it's all about power bringing privileges and people without power feeling their sense of weakness and wanting to get power so they can be better people and better spouses and better parents and live out their dreams. Cultural power. We all know power brings privileges. Study after study has shown it. And my guess is you know it in your life as well as I do. Here's another study though. Power not only brings privileges, power kind of corrupts. And it corrupts and because it often leads to selfishness. I read of a study that was done by a university. I think it was in California. And uh, here's how it worked. They uh, separated this large group of people that were chosen at random into groups of three, totally at random. 
So they're, they, they didn't choose people to be in the groups of certain you know, character. They, they didn't classify people into groups according to skill sets, makeup, nothing. Just divided the group into threes and completely at random designated one of the three to be the leader. Again, there was no uh, skill set test. There was no leadership exam. Nobody took inventories. Nobody talked about history. Randomly selected one person in each group of three to be the leader. They then distributed four cookies to each of the groups of three. Question, who do you think got that fourth cookie most of the time? It it would have been easy if it was just two in a group. You could break it in half. No, no, no. Most of the time, the randomly selected leader assumed it was his or her right to the cookie. Notice how that works? Power kind of brings privileges. And before you know it, power often brings a sense of selfishness. And I deserve regardless of how you got to the position. You know, there's a leadership or a power paradox that goes something like this. Once you enter an organization, a lot of the research says, It's your EQ, your emotional intelligence that will help you rise to positions of leadership. Now, emotional intelligence has four components, uh, pretty easy to understand, but it basically means being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. But here are the components of an EQ. Self-awareness, you're kind of aware of yourself and how you're coming across, and self-management. You're able to control how you're coming across. But then there's also a social awareness. You can read the crowd. You're able to put yourself into their shoes. You empathize, but also social management. You're able to kind of manage expectations and kind of look out for other people, et cetera. So once you're in an organization, you know, the old cliche goes, your IQ may get you into a company. Your EQ is what will help you rise through the ranks. Power is a paradox. EQ skills, self-awareness, social awareness, self-management, social management, they're the skills that will help you rise to leadership. But once someone rises to leadership, those same empathetic skills begin to evaporate and deteriorate. And it becomes less easy to empathize and put yourself into someone else's shoes. Power. Power brings privileges. Power has a tendency to corrupt. And if we're not careful, the power paradox can help us to kind of diminish our empathy and allow ourselves to become primary and other people to just be there to serve us. Well, why are we talking about those things? Well, because those are the exact issues that are going on in the church in Corinth and in the whole city of Corinth. Remember, people went to Corinth to accumulate possessions People went to Corinth to achieve and accumulation and achievement were all about getting, retaining power. How does Paul respond to the context of the power play and all that's going on, the accumulation of stuff, the achievement that brings with it accolades, patronage, and power? Well, let's read a few verses from 1 Corinthians 2 to see how Paul responds to the power plays of Corinth. I'm going to read the first five verses. Then I'm going to jump down to verse 10 and I'll read through the end of the chapter. So 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in chapter 1. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, 
I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now jump down to verse uh, 10. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit explaining spiritual uh, realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. The person with the spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, if you put yourself into the shoes of that cultural power going on in Corinth, that power that privileges, that power that corrupts, that power that perverts, and that power that causes empathy to go to the back burner, and that power kind of rises to the surface where it becomes more about me and empathy becomes more and more difficult. Paul says he showed up into that context with a spirit-centered power. Paul figured out, if you read these first couple of chapters, Paul really is teasing out a countercultural message and lifestyle. It's countercultural wisdom. It's the wisdom of the cross, not a message of victory, putting our, put, patting ourselves on the back and moving out victory after victory. The power of the cross seeming defeat, power of the spirit, power that comes in weakness, great fear, great trembling, That's what Paul's laying out. He didn't come like the typical pursuer of power to Corinth. He came in weakness, someone who didn't know how to speak real well, but he came in demonstration of the wisdom of the gospel and the power of the spirit. You know, the spirit and power kind of go all the way through the the scripture. In fact, as Paul lays that out in the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 2, In my mind, at least, I think he's probably reflecting on a verse all the way back in Zechariah in the Old Testament. And here's what the prophet Zechariah said. This is the word of the Lord. It's not by might, not by human might. It's not by power, not by human power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. So as Zerubbabel is trying to go about this job that seems beyond him, he's feeling foolish, He's not able to do it intellectually. He's feeling weak. He's not able to do it. And uh, Zechariah says, wait a minute. You were designed, you were built not to function with your own wisdom and power, but to be a vessel through which the spirit can energize and empower you. The idea comes up in the New Testament in a real familiar verse to all of you. In the beginning of Acts, Jesus has recently been crucified. Jesus has now ascended 
and the disciples are feeling weak. Um, after all, their leader had been killed. They're wondering what they're to do. They can't put it together um, intellectually. They certainly don't feel like they can do it in their own strength. And here's what Jesus says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Notice again, the Spirit gives us power to fulfill the mission. The Spirit gives us power when we feel foolish. The Spirit gives us power when we feel weak. And the Spirit gives us the power necessary to do what God's calling us to do. That means if we're going to be able to live out the foolishness of the cross and live that kind of life, and if we're going to be able to overcome our weakness in fulfilling the mission of continuing what Jesus started, then we've got to know something about the power that comes through the Holy Spirit. Well, that then raises a couple of really interesting questions because we use the word spirit a lot, but I'm not quite sure that we're often on the same wavelength when we're talking about what spirit means. We talk about being spiritual or being unspiritual. We're talking about being filled with the spirit or indwelled by the spirit. Lots of spirit language flowing around. But what actually do we mean? When we refer to the power of the spirit, is it kind of like electrical power? You plug it in and now you're energized to go do it. So is the spirit like a force? What exactly is going on? Um, well, here's, what, yeah, here's a problem that that automatically brings us. Some work is required to understand the wisdom and the power that's necessary in order for us to do what God calls us to do. Let me uh, use this as an illustration. I love to hear people uh, speak Spanish. Every once in a while, I'll be flipping through the stations and, and I'll pass a Spanish-speaking station. Maybe music is on, there's kind of a Spanish video on, or maybe people are just talking in Spanish. And, and I just love that. Now, again, I don't understand anything they're saying. To me, it's nothing but a giant blur. I can't tell when one word ends, the next word begins. I don't get any of it, but it sounds really cool. Well, just suppose I said, you know what? I really, I, I want to learn how to speak Spanish. I want to learn how to understand what's going on. And so I go, you know, online and I purchase a Spanish, English, English, Spanish dictionary. And what I do is uh, every morning, I'm going to take like four or five minutes and I'm going to flip around my English, Spanish, Spanish, English dictionary, and I'm going to learn a couple of words. And so then when I watch the station, I'll be able to figure it out. Oh yeah. And then once a week, I'll either go online or I'll gather with a group of people and have them talk about Spanish for a little bit. Have them talk about the grammar of Spanish, some vocabulary of Spanish, some syntax of Spanish. And so I'll spend a half hour a week with some other people talking about Spanish and I'll spend a few minutes a day in my Spanish, English, English, Spanish dictionary. And maybe I'll be able to, how long would it take you to figure out what's going on as you're flipping through the stations? You'd probably never get there. Sad to say, that's often how we approach trying to understand things about God. We think that a couple minutes a day, gathering together, listening to a, you know, a podcast or listening to a message online for 30 minutes a week, we're going to get it. You know, we're, we're giving our 40 minutes a week and we're going to get, it would take forever to do that. So when we're trying to answer the who is the Holy Spirit, what's the Holy Spirit do questions, we can't just do that in sound bites. We can't just do that in little cliches. And that kind of runs right up against our instantaneous social media world with little quotes and snippets 
but not much nuance, not a whole lot of thought. We need to spend time behind those things, wrestling with what the scripture says, seeking to not just get to the destination, but working with the map to get to the destination. So first of all, who is the Holy Spirit? That's a good question. Well, let me uh, first of all say, the Holy Spirit is a real, relevant person. The Holy Spirit's not an it. The Holy Spirit's not just a force. The Holy Spirit does empower and energize us, but the Holy Spirit is a person. And here's where you know, our head really begins to hurt. Um, the Holy Spirit's a real relevant person, but the Holy Spirit doesn't have a body, which means you can't see the Holy Spirit. You may be able to see what the Spirit does, but you can't see the Holy Spirit. Well, you know, there are some people in our world, and maybe some of you watching are of the mindset, I won't believe it unless I can see it. You know what? You're in a whole world of trouble, not only when it comes to the Holy Spirit, but in a whole lot of other things. For example, air is real and air is relevant, but my guess is you can't see it. But yet if you enter a room that has no air, even though you can't see it, you're not going to be there long, at least in a healthy way, even though air can't be seen, it's invisible, but it's real and it's relevant. Here's another one, gravity. Last time I checked, you can't see gravity, but it's real and it's relevant. And the same person that says, I won't believe it unless I see it. You could climb to the top of a building or just go to the top of a ladder and say, well, I'm only going to believe what I see. You can dive off denying the reality of gravity, but gravity is real and relevant and you're going to experience that quickly. Air, gravity, and a whole bunch of other things are real and relevant, even though they're invisible and can't be seen. The Holy Spirit is a real relevant person. And it's that person that wants to empower and energize you and me to live out what God calls us to do. Well, the second thing, the Holy Spirit is not just a real relevant person. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit's not just any person. The Holy Spirit's a God person. And if you think the whole invisibility thing kind of hurts your head, uh, try this one. The Bible makes it crystal clear that God is a trinity, tri-unity, three in one. One God. There are not five gods, there aren't three gods. There's one God. But God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now think, to, think about this. The Father is fully God, but the Father is not the Son. The Son is fully God, but the Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is fully God, but the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Three members of God, but they're not each other. They have individual identities, but they're one God. I can't figure that out. One of my old uh, theology profs used to, uh, whenever we, we would reach these uh, seemingly dead ends in theology, he would often say, and that's part of the price we pay for having an infinite God. We've got a God who's infinite. We've got a God that's bigger than our understanding, and we're not going to be able to figure everything out. We know that God is one, but we know that God exists in three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and they're not each other. They are themselves, but they're one, working in concert, knowing each other, loving each other. And that's why Christianity is the only belief system in the entire world where community is the beginning of the story. We exist in the image of a community. We're built for community because God made us in his image 
And God himself is a community. Who is the Holy Spirit? Real relevant person, a God person. And he wants to empower and energize us to live as God wants us to live. Well, that's kind of the who question. And maybe that's a little more theoretical than you paid for this morning. Well, let's get to the more practical question. What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, in a preparation for this, I, I made a little list. What's the Holy Spirit do? There's a very short list, all right? So here are some things that the Bible says the Holy Spirit does. Creation, revelation, inspiration, restraint of sin, power to cast out demons, conception of Christ's human nature, conviction of sin, regeneration, baptism into the union, into union with the church, indwelling, sealing, sealing, distribution of gifts, filling, sanctification, production of Christian character, leading, assurance of salvation, intercession in prayer, spiritual blessing and fruitfulness. And that's a partial list. I mean, the Holy Spirit's work is kind of all over the Bible. And the Holy Spirit wants to energize and empower us. That's the source of living out the power that Paul comes to the Corinthians and says that they need and we need. So if you're feeling this morning like you need power to even understand what's happening in our country and world, to understand what's happening in your marriage, your family, at Calvary Church, our communities, we need the Spirit to understand and the Spirit to live out those particular things as God calls us to. All right, so what does the Holy Spirit do specifically? Let me mention a couple of things. Well, the primary thing the Spirit does is he focuses our attention on Jesus. In that regard, the Holy Spirit's kind of like John the Baptist. As you read through the Gospels, John the Baptist was always having to say, it's not me, I'm not the one, he's the one. I'm not the one, I'm gonna decrease, he's gonna increase. It's not me, it's him. What does the Holy Spirit do? He's always focusing our attention on Jesus. You know, in that way, he's kind of like the seven dwarfs. Remember Snow White and the seven dwarfs? I'm not sure if you ever thought about it this, this way. Well, Snow White shows up at, you know, the house of the seven dwarfs, and they kind of take her in, and they provide for her, and they protect her, and they feed her, and they listen to her, and they take care of her. The seven dwarfs really spend a lot of time giving, sacrificing their lives, their time, their energy for Snow White. But in the midst of that, Snow White sings a song. Someday my prince will come. Someday my prince will You know, I often wonder, maybe the dwarfs used to fight. Hey, I'm really the prince. You know, Doc kind of fighting with Sneezy or Happy. Hey, I'm the one. No, no, I'm the one. I'm the one. I'm the prince that's coming. Well, then the wicked witch shows up with that poison apple and, you know, Snow White's ready to take a bite. We want to choke that wicked witch and Snow White eats and Snow White falls into a deep sleep. And eventually the prince comes and Snow White leaves with the prince. The dwarfs took her in provided for her, sacrificed for her. They did everything. The prince comes. They all get shafted. She goes off with the prince. Are the dwarfs ticked off? No, the dwarfs are happy. They're excited. They're celebrating. Now, look, I can understand Dopey celebrating. You don't know any better, right? Doc celebrating? Happy's always happy. Maybe he's, they're all celebrating. You know, in some ways, the Holy Spirit, kind of like the seven dwarfs, calling us to um, see the prince, focus on the prince, follow the prince, Holy Spirit, focusing attention on Jesus. The second thing the Holy Spirit does is that he 
reproduces Jesus in us. Now, there are a whole bunch of different ways that the Bible, you know, the New Testament talks about that. We talk today about spiritual formation, okay? The spirit is forming Jesus' priorities, values, character in us. That's what spiritual formation is. And so whether we think about beatitudes, fruit of the spirit, faith, hope, and love, characteristics of Christ-likeness, the characteristics of love from 1 Corinthians 13. They are the qualities, the characteristics that the Spirit is producing in us. It's not coincidental that Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit is producing. We're not producing them. They're not the fruit of Christians. They're the fruit of the Spirit produced in us. The Holy Spirit focuses on Jesus and then reproduces Jesus, forms Jesus in us. That's what the Holy Spirit does, focuses and then forms. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit leads us into unity. You know, unity is a really big deal for Paul. In fact, a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians, he's going to talk about unity. In chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the metaphor of a body. And he says, just as a body is one, but it has many different parts, so it is with Christ. We're all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, we're all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. That's the idea. Lots and lots of different people, ethnicities, nationalities, races, genders, all together forming one body. The Holy Spirit produces unity as people know their gifts, accept the priorities of the kingdom, live out the gospel, bearing the fruit. We function as one. It's the Spirit producing unity. You know, it's almost ironic, and it would be really funny if it wasn't so sad. What's like one of the main questions that the disciples have through the gospels as they're traveling around with Jesus. Who is the greatest? Hey, Jesus, who is the greatest? Um, I think I'm greater than him. No, he's greater than me. And think about it. They are with the greatest. They're with the infinite God himself, but they're fighting who's the greatest. Kind of sounds like discussions um, today. Sad to say, not just in the political world, not just in the athletic world, in the church world, even in our homes, in our workplaces. Who's the greatest? Who's getting enough accolades? Who's getting more pats on the back? Who's getting lifted up? Who's getting pushed down? The Holy Spirit makes us one. And remember from a few weeks ago, how does the Spirit make us one? One of the ways he does that is he focuses our attention on Jesus. We're only going to be one as Christ in the gospel is the primary absolute and our convictions and all of our preferences are all secondary to the one absolute of Jesus in the center. The primary work of the spirit is focusing our attention on Jesus. Well, another thing I want to mention, and we'll uh, kind of end with this. The Holy Spirit does a whole bunch of stuff as I read. Here's one more. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be what we were intended to be. We talk a lot about the story here at Calvary Church. God creates and God is rejected and God promises. And then God shows up and God sends and God will one day bring to fruition and conclusion as God restores everything. God calls us and empowers us through the spirit 
to be the hors d'oeuvres of what the kingdom will be like forever and ever. Have you ever seen a fashion show? If you know me, you know I, I've never been to one. I have watched a couple on TV, not the whole thing. I'm flipping through and, oh, here's another fashion show. But I've seen enough on television to know how fashion shows work. Here's how they work. A designer designs some fashion. A designer makes a few dresses, some pants, suits, whatever, for men and women. And what's the designer doing? The designer is, in a sense, designing the future. And if you've ever read about, you know, a fashion show that happened, you'll often read headings like this. This is what spring will look like. This is where fall's going. This style's now out. This is coming in. The designer kind of designing the future. The designer then hand selects certain models. And the models walk up and down the runway, in a sense, showing the future to the glory and the praise of the designer. Hmm. Kind of sounds like what the Spirit's doing, isn't it? The Holy Spirit clothing us with the garments of the future, clothing us with the priorities, the values, clothing us with the objectives, the characteristics, the qualities, the fruit, fruit of the future. And then he wants to parade us up and down in our culture, in our context, showing everyone what the future, the eternal future, will look like. You know, we've got a great opportunity. In the midst of what's going on in our country and around the world, in the midst of what's going on at your workplace, in the midst of what's going on as we're coming out of hibernation from COVID, and in the midst of racial unrest and racial discrimination and racism, we've got an opportunity to wear the garments of the future. I've got a little assignment for you. If you've been around Calvary Church long at all, you've probably heard me say, well, we need to fly the Jesus flag at the top of the flagpole. I usually say that when we're talking about absolutes, convictions, and preferences. And what I mean to say is, you know what? All of our convictions as Tenaciously as you may hold them, they need to be held secondarily to the Jesus that the scripture presents and everything secondary. Your preferences had better take a distant seat to having Jesus at the top of the flagpole. But you know, there's something you and I have to do. Before we fly the Jesus flag at the top of the flagpole, we have to first fly the surrender flag at the top of our flagpole. You see, the Jesus flag can't make it to the top of the flagpole. We've got a whole bunch of cultural wisdom and cultural power stuff up there. And so I'm going to ask you to do two things. It's part of application for this morning. Firstly, fly the surrender flag over your life. Take your life with open hands and ask the Spirit, the Spirit who indwells you. As a follower of Jesus, He indwells you. Ask the Spirit to search your heart, search your mind. Where are you expecting and feeling entitled to the privileges of power, cultural power? How have you been corrupted by the selfishness of power? How have you seen empathy erode away because cultural power has crept in? Would you take the courageous step of flying the surrender flag over your life?
Biblically, that's called confession, repentance, flying a surrender flag. Once you fly the surrender flag, you can then fly the Jesus flag at the top of your flagpole. But make no mistake, if you try to fly the Jesus flag, but you're already flying your own power, your own wisdom flag, Jesus flag will always hit up against that and he'll always be secondary. We've got an awesome opportunity in our culture and our world right now to be the models that the Spirit is dressing, showing people what the future looks like. I can't think of a more profound way to live and a more urgent, ultimate calling that the gospel has on every one of our lives. What do you say? Be a model. Father, we confess that as we think about the characteristics of cultural power, we all bear a resemblance to that. And maybe we feel that we haven't accumulated a whole lot, but maybe our lives are pursuing that. And we're pursuing those traits of cultural power, that privilege that comes, that sense of entitlement and expectation. Lord, I pray that we would fly the surrender flag over all that cultural power stuff. And that we would pursue spirit-centered power that has the cross as our trajectory, has personal human weakness as the method, and spirit-energizing power as the vehicle that gives us what we need to continue what Jesus started. Lord, as we think about our world, our culture, and the short little life that you give us, help us to be good models living out the characteristics of the future, the glory of our designer, and to the praise of Jesus. We pray in his name.